Optimal health for high performers. This is the Health Upgrade Podcast with Dr. Nawaz Habib. Hi, everybody. It's Dr. Habib here again with JP Erico, my co-host for the Health Upgrade Podcast Season 2, where we're talking all about the autonomic nervous system and the vagus nerve and how it is responsible for and in control of inflammation and how it responds to and affects so many different conditions that are present. And today, we're going to dig into somatoform disorders. And before we kind of dig into the pathophysiology and understanding where these somatoform disorders really come from, why don't we talk about some of these conditions uh, in regards to what they are. For a lot of people that are listening, they may not understand exactly what we're talking about. So JP, why don't you give us a bit of a rundown of somatoform disorders that we're going to be speaking about today? Sure. So somatoform disorders are defined really in the psychiatric literature as conditions or symptoms that are similar to symptoms that have a defined medical cause and yet do not have a defined medical cause that has been identified. So the simplest way to think about it is if you are going around with stomach pains or headaches or other symptoms that are frankly similar to flu-like symptoms, well, if you have the flu, then there's a defined medical cause. You have a viral infection that's leading you to have those symptoms. But for many people, they experience these symptoms over a much longer period of time. And despite really diligent attempts by medical professionals to identify what the cause is, they're unable to do so. And so they simply lump them together as somatoform disorders. They don't have a defined medical cause. I unfortunately believe that that's a cop-out because there always is a cause. There always is a reason why people are experiencing these symptoms. And yet uh, they get lumped into the psychiatric literature as um, sort of having created it themselves. Which this is, is a very common mindset in the conventional medical system of these somatoform disorders. And when it comes to the functional approach, the functional medicine, functional uh, health approach, it's very much understanding that there always is a root cause. And we can't, like you said, it, it is absolutely a cop-out to give one of these diagnoses. And the diagnoses that we're speaking of primarily are things like fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome, irritable bowel syndrome, which there's so many things I can talk about when we get into IBS, uh, particularly pelvic inflammatory disease, idiopathic asthma, chronic allergies, skin conditions like atopic dermatitis, and even eczema, which we're finding there are root causes to a lot of these things. And there, there has to be, you can't have a condition without a reason for that condition. And you can't have a diagnosis without something actually occurring within the body. And that's where the root cause approach really takes hold. But why don't we talk a little bit about some of the conditions we're trying to avoid in this particular conversation, the ones that we're not including in, in today's discussion. Yeah. So we're not including things like um, inflammatory bowel disease, which really is distinct from in irritable bowel syndrome, not things like Crohn's disease. We're not talking about ulcerative colitis. We're not talking about psoriasis necessarily. Uh, again, atopic dermatitis and eczema are different. Um, we're not talking about rheumatoid arthritis. We're talking about fibromyalgia. We're talking about things that don't have a defined inflammatory causation that is coexisting with the symptoms. There may be some level of heightened inflammation in those patients, 
but it is not to the level that you would experience with rheumatoid arthritis, despite the fact that the symptoms, which the patient is feeling, may be very similar. Yeah, that's exactly right. So essentially, when it comes to diagnostic criteria for these autoimmune style conditions, things like finding rheumatoid factor high in rheumatoid arthritis, or noticing that there are actually lesions within the bowels in Crohn's and colitis patients, those are defined diagnoses that have an autoimmune finding and specific blood work findings that are diagnostic of those uh, and the criteria are met. When it comes to the somatoform disorders, we're speaking about things that don't have those defined blood work markers that still are showing up with regards to symptomatic nature of the uh, experience, things like fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue and idiopathic asthma, et cetera. So that's, that's where we're going to focus our attention today. And why don't we talk a little bit about kind of the introduction to this. So if you've listened to the last few episodes, we've spoken about the central nervous system. We've had a bit of an overview of the autonomic nervous system in our first episode. And want to talk a little bit about just reviewing what those central nervous system disorders were. And then we'll get into some more on the inflammation piece as well. What, what are those markers of inflammation that we know to be present when we're going down these health condition pathways, these diagnostic pathways? Sure. So some of the conditions we talked about in the central nervous system that do overlap with the somatoform disorders are things like depression, anxiety, headache, tinnitus. You have uh, the degenerative disorders that happen later in life, things like Parkinsonism and, and Alzheimer's. And, and there's sleep disorders and other things that we don't necessarily consider to be um, somatoform disorders, and yet uh, oftentimes coexist in these patients. And I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the comorbidities that we see in these, in these problems. You, you know, if you go to a gastroenterologist and you say, I have these gastric symptoms, this, this discomfort, these uh, other symptoms, bloating and pain, et cetera, you may also be experiencing depression. You may also be experiencing sleep problems. You may also be experiencing migraines. But you're not going to be talking with the gastroenterologist, though you might try. You will not be successful talking to a gastroenterologist about your headaches. And the same is true if you go to a neurologist and you are experiencing these other symptoms. They aren't interested in talking with you about your fibromyalgia symptoms. They'll talk to you about your headaches and maybe even about your sleep problems, but they're not going to talk to you about the rest of it. And yet, for many patients who experience these problems, especially if they're of the somatoform nature, they're experiencing them simultaneously. And, and I discovered that this was going on. I shouldn't say discovered. I, I realized that this was going on when I was doing work in the field of headache. Um, I was over in the UK working with a group of, of clinical pharmacists. And what we discovered was that when we looked at people who were suffering with severe and sort of chronic headache problems, their, the rest of their diagnoses seem to be very similar. And they covered exactly what we've been talking about, depression, sleep problems, widespread pain, gastric problems. And nobody had linked them together as being having had the same root cause. There were certainly lots of papers out there talking about how if you have depression and headache, that you're much more expensive to deal with than if you only have one of those conditions. And so what we did was we, we took this on head on, took our data to statisticians and asked them to 
run a series of different analyses. And we will we'll go into those in a breakout session, um, talking about what type of, uh, of stat- statistics they used, et cetera. But what they did was effectively what's called a latent causation analysis, an analysis to show that it was not as if one of those conditions, either depression or headache or gastric symptoms, was driving the rest of the symptomatology. It was not that one of them was the root cause. In fact, none of them is in and of itself the root cause. It is an underlying autonomic nervous system problem that drives the experience of these symptoms. And this discovery of that, I think, is relatively remarkable. And I think that it will ultimately have a lot of impact on everything from how these patients are being treated to how insurance companies cover and how payers uh, choose to see these patients and, and choose to manage them. Yeah, no question about it. That, and you, you had mentioned this earlier, and I remember there was even an interesting story of a GI doc that uh, you were speaking with in the UK that didn't realize that about 80% of his patients were also dealing with migraines. And that after they saw him on, I forget which floor of the building it was, they would go up to the neurologist and have an appointment with the neurologist about their headaches and that there was such a, a strong correlation there, such a strong uh, percentage of overlap between these same similar kind of root cause to symptomatic nature of their conditions, which, which is just crazy to think. But it does come down to being able to recognize those patterns and stating that it's not just about a particular system that isn't working, that there is a connecting point that is not working correctly. And that is where the autonomic nervous system really comes into play is we find that the autonomic nervous system, both the sympathetic and parasympathetic branches, are that connecting point between the neurological, the immune, the gastro, uh, gastrointestinal, the detoxification system, the digestive system, you name it. Every system is kind of connected in some way to allow for that systematic function to occur. And when we're finding these diagnostic patterns that seem so similar between these types of patients, it doesn't really make sense to focus on just that system that's not working when we're ignoring all of the other connecting points. And that connecting point often just is that autonomic nervous system that is not working as well as we need it to. Yeah, you, you, you and I spoke about the fact that the, the GPs, the general practitioners and the internists, they see these patients as, as sort of whole beings as opposed to the specialists who see them as you know, one organ that's not functioning properly and they sort of exclude the, the symptoms and other things that are coming that they perceive as coming from separate systems that aren't linked. But everything is linked. It's, it's a symphony that's taking place within us and we have to be careful about uh, managing it. I think the patients are the ones who are most aware of the fact that these symptoms must be related. And one of the things that we found when we studied modulating the autonomic nervous system to treat them, what we found was that many of them shared experiences that were similar. They had had either a a car accident or they had had surgery or they had some sort of long-term viral or parasitic or, or bacterial infection that had been prolonged and that they all experienced the same phenomenon, which is that they had been very healthy up until that point in their lives. And once that happened, then all of these symptoms sort of blossomed simultaneously or within a very short period of time thereafter. And so they, just based on the timing in their lives, recognized that there must be something that linked them together. 
and I had the opportunity, my father's an obstetrician gynecologist. And so I had the opportunity to speak with him about his own experiences in his practice. And the fact that many of the people who suffer with these somatoform disorders are actually women. So it is a women's health issue. Um, there's reasons why women are affected more than men. It's not that men aren't susceptible to this. They are, but it happens more frequently in women. And so I had the opportunity to speak with him. And he said, you know, I, I was always aware of the fact that I had a subset of my patients who experienced a wide variety of different symptoms. And many of my colleagues, he would say, viewed them as a little crazy. Um, and, and frankly, that's the word that he used, that, that they were just, you know, they were out of their heads. And he said that that never really sat well with him because he knew these people he, and he, he had known them long enough to know them prior to them experiencing these symptoms. And he said, it just didn't make sense to him that something had was being generated cognitively in these patients to, to or, or psychiatrically to be the problem. It was something physical. It's just that he was honest enough to say, I don't know what it is and I can't figure it out, whereas colleagues weren't so honest about it. Yeah, it's an unfortunate situation when a patient goes in to see a specialist for a first time or have an appointment with the new doctor and they, they're given this kind of runaround of it's kind of all in your head. And, and I've heard that said to me from so many different patients. The doctor just said it was in my head. It was in my brain. It was some, I was making it up or I was malingering in some way. And it's, it's not true in a lot of cases that there is some sort of physical reason for it. And, and kudos to your dad for saying that he, he didn't know what it was. Too many docs aren't willing to do that. And that's something on the clinical side that I wish we would be able to address because we really do want to note that there is a physical pathway to a lot of these conditions, that there are certain imbalances and, and triggers like these bacterial or parasitic infections or some sort of traumatic event, whether biochemical or physical or emotional, that can trigger a timeline of these cascading negative events, often that are affecting the auto, autonomic nervous system and thus affecting inflammation levels. And so I'd love to kind of dig in now to just a quick review on how inflammation functions within both the central nervous system and periphery as well. Absolutely. And, and just before we jump in there, I just want to defend my father's colleagues who, who were of the generation where they use terms like crazy, et cetera. Some of the symptoms of somatoform disorder are mental problems, are, are problems like depression and anxiety. And so the patients come across sometimes with those symptoms and talk about those and complain about those symptoms. And so it's very easy for a person who doesn't know where the problem is coming from and how to treat it to chalk it up to something that's happening in their, in their central nervous system, that they're making it up or, or they become somehow medicalized. For those of you who are listening, I'm going to say, and, and I'm going to share with you what I'm doing. I'm pointing to my head. You know, I'm pointing to my forehead and saying, they're telling you it's all in your head. And the real answer is, it is all in your head, except it's not up here in your frontal lobes where you're creating it and manufacturing it. It's back here in the back of your brain where your brainstem is. That's where the problem arises. And so when we talk about how inflammation affects the central nervous system and how the central nervous system interprets in inflammation signals, all of that is taking place in the brainstem. And so the symptoms that you're experiencing are, as all experiences are, experienced in your brain. 
that's where the problem is and there are ways to solve it and and, and i'm looking forward to this episode and and being able to share all of that with with people and understand and give them first and foremost to the, the understanding that this is something that's real it is something that is treatable it's not easy to treat and it's going to take effort but there is a light at the end of the you know a tunnel and it's not an oncoming train yeah thank god <laughs> So as we as we talk about uh, inflammation and um, how inflammation affects the central nervous system and how it affects the the body, I like to start in the central nervous system first because um, that is again where we experience everything, and where I think there's a lot of misconceptions. I think on the last episode we talked about the fact that the brain is comprised of 86 billion neurons in a human brain, and that's a lot. And there's over 100 trillion connections between those neurons that form the neural network that allows us to do everything that we do as human beings. It's so fantastic, you know, putting, putting a man on the moon and, you know, and streaming Netflix. Um, but at the same time in the brain, there are at least as many, if not many more other types of cells. Now, some of them are of the same progenitor um, origin as neurons. Those are your astrocytes and oligodendrocytes. Um, those, those cells function to support how neurons uh, function and support the connectivity at the synapse and, and other things that they do. But there's a class of cells that, that takes up about 10%, some give or take 10% of the cells in your brain, which are not of the neuron origin. They are immune cells and they are the microglia. And it turns out, especially with, with an understanding of research that's taking place right now, the understanding of what microglia do and how important they are in the central nervous system really can't be understated. It, you have to recognize that they are the architects. They are the construction crew. They are the designers, the, 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 the maintenance crews. They do everything to maintain the milieu in which your brain can function and even control what, what nerves stay connected to what other nerves and how the, how the system functions. When they are in their normal, quiet, functioning state, they're doing all of those wonderful things, all of those neurotrophic things that help build the brain. When there is inflammation present, and the inflammation is a, a response to danger or to trauma or to injury or even emotional stress, um, when they are forced out of that, that quiescent, I'm going to call it the good mode, um, when they're forced out of that into that, that fighting inflammatory mode, they stop doing all of those things that they're supposed to be doing, or they do them incorrectly. And that leads to problems in the central nervous system. Now, that can be very severe. It can be like schizophrenia. It can lead to autism. It can lead to degenerative disorders like, like Alzheimer's. But even when it's not that severe, it has the ability to signal to the brain as to how it should be functioning and how it should be perceiving itself and the world around it. Um, and that's where you see the rise of many of these conditions that we're talking about today that you know, aren't as debilitating or, or degenerative as the, as the ones like Alzheimer's or autism or schizophrenia, but they have an impact on our quality of life. Um, the experience of pain, heightened experience of pain, the conscious experience of how our digestive system is functioning. You know, it, we function a lot better when we're not aware of it. When we're aware of it, we experience symptoms. 
it, it changes how we how our mood and and our our fear levels and our our anxiety levels. It allows us to sleep or not to sleep. So that inflammation, um, even at low levels, is is quite detrimental, especially if it it lasts over a very long period of time. Now, in the periphery, it's a little simpler. It's a little easier. Um, we have a series of innate and adaptive immune cells that that work in harmony to to manage new injuries, new pathogens, as well as repeat offenses by pathogens. That's what the adaptive immune system is all about, is dealing with viruses and bacteria and, pa and, and parasites that we've seen before, sort of making short work of it. But when the immune system is not regulated properly, it can be quite dangerous. Um, we, we see that in anaphylactic shock and other experiences where the immune system is, has gone awry. When the immune system peripherally is not functioning properly, it can lead to things like rheumatoid arthritis or inflammatory bowel disease or psoriasis. Um, and in the central nervous system, the same sort of thing can happen with autoimmune diseases like multiple sclerosis. Um, so the immune system has to be managed. It has to be managed appropriately so that we have it available when we need it, but that it doesn't intrude and damage us when we don't need it. And so there are multiple ways to manage the immune system uh, function and keep it in, its, in a quiet mode. Some of those are uh, the glucocorticoids that are released from our uh, adrenal glands and the HPA axis. Um, there are intracellular mechanisms inside the cells that sort of keep that inflammatory response quiet. And then there's the nervous system. And the nervous system has a way of managing inflammation through the autonomic nervous system. And, and one of the things you and I have talked about is the difference between the two arms of the autonomic nervous system. You have the, um, the parasympathetic, which is your rest, digest, and restore or heal mode. And then you have the fight or flight mode, which is your sympathetic nervous system. We've talked about the fact that modern society sort of pushes us in the direction of being sympathetically driven. But if you get into the science of it, just briefly, the, the sympathetic nervous system releases norepinephrine. Yeah. Norepinephrine binds to receptors that are on those immune cells that we've been talking about, microglial cells, as well as it peripherally macrophages and monocytes. But there's two different types of receptors in this, this way that norepinephrine can work. You got the beta-1 receptors and beta-2 receptors. Beta-1 receptors are actually inflammatory. So you end up with this fight or flight inflammatory response being sympathetically driven, and you're driven away from a homeostasis in the direction of inflammation. The alternative direction is if the beta-2 receptors are being bound, then the beta-2 receptors will, will be anti-inflammatory. But you have this, this sympathetic drive away from homeostasis. So think of, think of your sympathetic nervous system as driving you away from that calm, peaceful place where you're healthy and everything's functioning normally. The parasympathetic does the opposite. Its primary uh, neurotransmitter is acetylcholine. And again, your innate immune cells have on them receptors for acetylcholine, one of which is the alpha-7 nicotinic acetylcholine receptor. And when acetylcholine binds to that receptor, it downregulates inflammation, not to the point where your immune cells aren't capable of functioning properly if needed, but it puts them back into that homeostasis sort of position of being quietly doing its job. And um, so I think again of 
the, the sympathetic nervous system is pushing you out of homeostasis and the parasympathetic is pushing you back into homeostasis. Very simple analogy that I like to use for this is the sympathetic nervous system is like the accelerator in a car and the parasympathetic nervous system is like the brakes and both need to be working in order for you to get to where you want to go, but they need to be working in balance. And if we're only pushing the accelerator, we're going to get there way too fast and put a lot of people in danger. And if only the parasympathetic side is working, then we're just going to be way too slow and not be able to get to the destination effectively. So there needs to be a balance between these two. The problem is what's happening right now is most people are pushing the accelerator and not holding on to the brake well enough. And so that's where the danger arises because we're in this mostly inflammatory triggering fight or flight type of response in most people most of the time. And so that's just an important simple analogy for those who want a a simple way to understand the biochemistry. So as we were just talking about the somatoform disorders are not like the autoimmune diseases and the other conditions where inflammation is currently present at high levels and the immune system is currently doing damage. What we're talking about are situations where there has been a prior immune system activation, chronic inflammation that's over an extended period of time that's been severe enough whether it be emotional or physical, and that that leads to a change in how the brain perceives itself. And so let's spend a little time talking about how that happens, because it's really the root cause behind many of these somatoform disorders. Every cubic millimeter of your body is filled with nerve cells that are bringing information back up into your brainstem. Just the same way your eyes collect information about what's going on around you, and that information is carried along the optic nerve into your visual cortex, all of that information about how your body is functioning and and what you're feeling and, and how things are working in your organs is coming up into your brainstem. And at the highest level, your brainstem's job is to create a perception of how you feel. Not, any, not dissimilar from the sense of hearing or, or taste or, or vision. So you have a sense of how you feel. Are you tired? Are you hungry? Are you nervous? Are you scared? Are you, you know, feeling pain? All of that information is, is coming up into your brainstem. Now, one of the key components of that information stream is information about your immune system and being delivered by your immune cells and by your immune system up into your brainstem. Most of the time, the message that's coming into your brainstem, it's got a muffler. And what it's doing, that brainstem is is muffling that information because it's not strong enough to get through and, and it's not meaningful enough for you to have a conscious perception of how your body is feeling. Now, that doesn't mean that sometimes you don't feel a little run down. It doesn't mean that sometimes your brain isn't modifying your behavior slightly in response to something that the immune system is telling you. But every once in a while, the immune system's message comes up and it's strong enough that it gets through that that filter and you begin to feel things like tiredness, fatigue, headache, stomach ache, little vertigo, you feel a little moody. All of those things are designed to change your behavior. And the goal of the immune system is to make certain that it's keeping you protected. The goal of the brain 
in response to that immune system is to make certain that you behave in a certain way so that the immune system can do its job. And that's why the symptoms of a wide variety of different illnesses and, and problems really are very similar to one another because it's actually, I, I like to call it a sick program. There's a sick program that's run inside your brain. And so when you have a, a viral infection, the sick program, if it's strong enough to make you sick, your sick program kicks into gear and you go lie down and you have you know, all the symptoms of the flu for several days. And then when you're done, you get up and you feel better and you go about your, your life again. Every once in a while, that sick program doesn't turn off properly. Um, it's generally caused by extensive periods of, or extended periods of systemic inflammation. That means the inflammation wasn't located in one part of your body, but it really went everywhere. And then the brainstem got flooded with signals saying, hey, we're sick, it's really bad, you're gonna have to feel bad. And then it, it lowers the threshold for the type of signal that will cause it to be feeling that way in the future. And, and let me explain what I mean by that. For some people, Getting a headache is very easy. For other people, it's very hard. I'm fortunate enough that I don't get headaches very easily, so you almost have to hit me in the head with a rock to give me a headache. But other people are not so fortunate. Other people will get a headache if they stay up too long or if they listen to loud music too much or if somebody's wearing a very, a very strong perfume, that will give them a headache. And all of those things are triggers for headache that... At some level, we all have, we all have the ability to experience a problem if we have those things in too high quantities or if it lasts too long. But for some people, that threshold for making you experience the problem of a headache is lower. What you want to do is you want to have those levels or those thresholds be as high as possible so that you can tolerate as much of an insult from these triggers as possible without experiencing the symptoms. What happens is if you have a period of prolonged inflammation where you've been put into that sick state, what happens is that threshold starts to drop and it becomes easier and easier for you to reach that, that, that feeling of having the symptoms, the, the headaches, the, the stomach aches, the, the tiredness, all of that is easier for you to reach. So the fortunate thing is if you, if you gather from what I've been saying, that's a movable line. That threshold is movable. You yep. can change it based on what you do. And things that we'll talk about later on in this podcast will help you raise that threshold higher. And, it, and it's controlled to a very large extent by your autonomic nervous system. Your autonomic nervous system sets that threshold. Now, how do we know everything that I just said? I mean, because obviously it's a good story, but there's got to be some good science behind it to support it. One of the simplest ways to recognize that this is true is because this is what we do to animal models in order to create animals that are experiencing these symptoms so that we can test medical treatments on them. One of the first things I got involved with when I was working on modulating the, the autonomic nervous system was a model of, of headache. It was, it was generated by a great researcher out of Thomas Jefferson University named Michael Oshinsky. Michael Oshinsky had taken mice and he had, uh, or rats, and he had exposed uh, the dura, which is the outer layer of their, their central nervous system, to 
a pro-inflammatory soup is what he called it. It was inflammatory soup. It was comprised of a whole bunch of different chemicals um, that are present in, in, in our bodies, but in high enough concentrations to cause an inflammatory response. Sure enough, if you do it once, the animal will experience a temporary period of pain that is similar to a headache. If you do it multiple times over a period of several days, what you will find is that the animal will slowly move into a state of always experiencing those symptoms. It's exactly what we've been talking about. If you have a long enough period of inflammatory insult, your brain will lower the thresholds so that you will experience pain whether it be headache or other pains, because there are other researchers who use other techniques that are very similar in other areas of the body to generate pain in a limb, pain in a paw, things like that. Um, and when you do that, you find that the animal will have a lower threshold, will experience pain chronically, and that they will be more easily triggered into a very severe state of pain. And so that's what's happening in our lives when we have very severe traumatic events, or whether they be emotional or physical or, or infections, that then leave us afterwards with a lower level or lower threshold for experiencing pain. As a final example, there's a phenomenon called post-infection bronchospasm, which is something that we probably have all experienced, which is that if you have a flu a respiratory virus or something like that that lasts for several days to a week, afterwards, several weeks to even longer, you can have almost like asthma symptoms of shortness of breath, a difficulty breathing that is a result of the fact that the airways in your lungs have become sensitized. They're a little twitchy. They can more easily be triggered into a state of uh, wheezing a little bit, and especially in cold weather. We all have experienced it. We sort of ignore it because it goes away. But I happen to have a family member who experienced two very severe back-to-back -back insults to his lungs. He had um, pneumonia twice within a matter of a couple of months. And as a result, he became asthmatic. I mean, a full-on asthmatic who needed to albuterol and needed to be on a steroid to manage his symptoms. Um, now, fortunately, he was aware of the, of the work that was being done in the autonomic nervous system. And so he availed himself of some of the technologies that are out there. And he was able to, to a very large extent, I won't say completely, but to a very large extent, relieve himself of, the, of that airway twitchiness and that, that asthma, those asthma symptoms to the point where he really doesn't experience it anymore. And his uh, sensitivity is much, much, much lower than it was right after the incident. It sounds very much, and I think a simple way to kind of put it is that your body creates this unconscious Pavlovian response to these stressors, and we're going to respond in a particular way. With all of the continuous insults or inflammatory triggers, the threshold is going to lower. This is a neuroplastic event, in fact, that we're learning that when the inflammation level is high, we need to have a threshold that is a little bit lower so that we can respond in that way and go and rest and do the things that our body kind of needs to get into that recovery state. But it happens a little sooner every time the insult occurs. And so this is almost like an unconscious Pavlovian neuroplastic response, which sounds like a negative thing, but at the same time, it can be construed in a very positive way because 
if we utilize that neuroplasticity and, and we change our environment, we change the triggers, we change the, uh, the inputs, we can actually create a Pavlovian response in the opposite way where we actually are able to elevate that threshold so that we aren't responding in that negative way all the time so quickly. I think that's a very broad view of kind of looking at it, but I, I think that's a simple way to understand it. Well, I think people can understand. I think you're right. And I think that people who have had experience either themselves or, or others that they know, loved ones who've experienced PTSD. Um, PTSD is an, a perfect example of what we're talking about. We're talking about repeated, serious, severe exposures to traumatic and potentially dangerous, life-threatening uh, circumstances. Um, when you're in those circumstances for a longer period of time, or it's very severe, your brain recognizes that, hey, I need to be in a very alert, hypervigilant state. I need to react violently or, or very severely to potential threats. And I'm going to see potential threats where other people might not, or where people who've never experienced these symptoms might not. I, you know, I, I think all of us have experienced, you know, something in our lives that was you know, uh, whether it was bullying as a kid or, you know, some stressful work situation where you find yourself for a period of time thereafter irritable, easily, easily triggered into an emotional response. That's, that's really exactly the same phenomenon. It's exactly the same thing. What we need to do is figure out how to downregulate that response, how to dilute it so that it moves back into a more normal state. It is a healthy response. I mean, imagine a person who's in a, in a battlefield or, or a, a wartime condition. If you were just sort of perpetually in that relaxed mode, you wouldn't react when you need to. You wouldn't react in a situation where it is dangerous. So your, your brain moves the threshold to a state where it says, hey, I need to respond quickly. I need to respond violently. I need to get out of the situation and to safety. Um, and I need to see danger everywhere because if I don't, I could be I could be killed. That's the type of environment that leads to the whole host of problems that that PTSD sort of syndrome. There are ways to bring that back down to a more normal uh, responsiveness. It's never going to be totally normal, but it will be it will be passably normal, something that you can live with, and and frankly. Only you will know, and it, it will be, as I said, a much higher quality of life. But it's all about the autonomic nervous system and, frankly, controlling how your perception in your central nervous system perceives the world around you. And the immune system plays a big role, especially your microglia, in allowing you to move from one state to the other. Yeah, that's such an important piece of the puzzle here. And as we get into speaking about these particular conditions, the fibromyalgia, the chronic fatigue, the idiopathic asthma, as we get into understanding how the process works, you'll begin to understand that it's the control of inflammation, that autonomic response that's been pushed into that sympathetic activation side of things for most of these people. And that's the pathway by which the condition exists and is created within the body. And so we can talk about how to then shift that autonomic response towards parasympathetics inflammatory controlling and inflammatory decreasing 
so as to a elevate those thresholds and b actually create recovery and and uh, repair within the body. Absolutely, and 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 your microglial cells, the immune cells that are in your central nervous system. We talked about it earlier that the microglial cells are really important for controlling the connectivity in the central nervous system. And when you have in your central nervous system uh, connections being made associated with danger or stress or or risk or or either life threatening situations, what the brain is doing is it's it's rewiring itself chronically and as it's constantly rewiring itself and using the microglial cells to do so uh, to facilitate that if they're in an in an angry state if you will or a fighting state then they're going to do it in a way that is damaging yeah. um, and what you need to do is we need to recruit those microglial cells back into their quiescent state so that they can make the proper changes. They can do the, they can, they're really the facilitators of neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity is what we need to rely on to change our brains back from running that sick program, running that stress-filled, sympathetically driven program into that quiescent mode, that rest, digest, and restore mode and to relinquish the higher or the, the lower thresholds uh, in favor of higher thresholds for experiencing those symptoms. And that's really what it's about. It's about using your autonomic nervous system to modulate the microglial cells so that they can change the connections in the brain, change the thresholds, and bring you back into what we all want to be, which is a healthy, pain-free, stress-free state. So I think the next step is to talk about how the autonomic nervous system affects those, those microglial cells and how we can use some tricks, some biohacks, if you will, to, um, to make the, um, the immune system and the central nervous system work for us. Let's dig into that. I love it. We'll get into the practical application of activating the autonomic nervous system in the right way. Yeah. And that, and that begins with making certain that the gut is is functioning properly there's such a huge uh, number of fibers that connect the the gut to the brainstem i mean your enteric nervous system is is the second it's your like your mini brain it's uh, the second largest clustering of neurons outside of your central nervous system in your body there's literally billions of them um, and they're connecting up into your brainstem through your vagus nerve um, and so uh, the vagus nerve is a really important part. It's the, it's the it's really your parasympathetic arm. It is your rest, digest, and restore highway. And so, activating and making certain that the signals coming out of your gut, going up into your brainstem through the vagus nerve, are healthy, and that they're sending the message up into the brainstem that you're safe, and that you are are not in need of inflammation. Um, that's really the first and, and primary uh, signal that we need. So the way to do it is, is through making certain you have a healthy gut. Um, but there's other ways. Another way is to exercise. Exercise is a great way to inform your body that you're healthy. For, for hundreds of years, it's been talked about in the literature that the best way to ensure uh, a recovery of, of anything from emotional to physical damage is to get up and walk. It's one of the reasons that the, in the hospital, they tell you you can't get out of the hospital until you get up and walk. Um, it sounds so 
pardon the pun, but pedestrian, but it is really all about getting up and moving. It's informing your body and your brain and your senses that you're healthy because we're designed to walk. That um, might be my favorite pun of all time, by the way. <laughs> pedestrian. <laughs> yeah. So good. Uh, just as a little side note, from a clinical perspective, with regards to the importance of the gut, really understanding that the microbiome plays such a major role in the production of a lot of these conditions. I'll, I'll have people come in to see me all the time, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue diagnoses, migraines, cluster headaches, you name it. And these somatoform style disorders and, and central nervous system disorders often have a root cause within something dietary or gut related, that there's some microbiome imbalance that's occurring, that's triggering an inflammatory response within the gut. And that's really important because about 70% of our immune cells by volume are located in the lining of the gut within the gut associated lymphoid tissue. And so we're constantly having this activation occurring when there is an imbalance within the microbiome. So getting testing or, or changing dietary strategies to allow for inflammation levels in the gut to decrease will have a profound effect on the ability to control inflammation within your entire body, no question about it. Yeah, and this is a perfect opportunity to, to have our, our, uh, our first quote from Hippocrates that we love, which is um, that all disease arises from the gut. And there's a reason for that. Um, you know, From your mouth all the way to the other end of your digestive tract, it is, it's really not you. It's, it's the external world. And so you want to have as strong a barrier between that external word, world and the internal world as you possibly can have. And the way to do that is to make certain that the endothelial lining of your gut is healthy. Um, and there's things like butyrate, uh, butyr you know, butyric acid that, that can, uh, the short chain fatty acids that help to maintain the integrity of that barrier. And because things have to pass through. I mean, when we eat, we want nutrients to come through that barrier, but at the same time, we want to make certain that that barrier uh, doesn't allow bad things through. Yeah. Um, so maintaining the gut microbiome, maintaining the integrity of that endothelial lining is critically important. It's also why the immune system has so many cells of its system stationed there, because any kind of perforation of, the, of that lining can be deadly. Um, I think, I, what do they say? The first two things they teach you in medical school are one, wash your hands, and two, never perf the bowel, never perforate the bowel, because that's a very quick way to end up in septic shock and dead. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but but as we talk about other ways to make certain that the, the, the messaging going up into your brainstem through your autonomic nervous system is as healthy as possible is exercise. Yeah. Uh, beyond beyond just what you do with your diet, you have to exercise. And there are some some biohacks that uh, are are simple. You know, gargling, um, humming, singing, Gregorian chants. I mean, things that are, are prana breathing techniques. A lot of these things have to do with your your neck and your esophagus and your vocal cords, etc. And it's because they're actually that vibration is stimulating the vagus nerve that sits right next to your, uh, your, your trachea and your esophagus in the carotid sheath. It wraps itself around the carotid artery to tell you how important it is. It's located right next to that, you know, that big blood vessel that if, you, if, if it's not functioning, you're not living. And so that's a really good biohack is to make certain that you're keeping your vagus nerve active, making certain that it's carrying all the 
good signals up into your brainstem that you need. Because 80% of those fibers that are in the vagus nerve are traveling from your body back up into your brainstem. It's really a sensory nerve. It's the way your brain knows how your body is functioning. Yeah, it's that thermostat marker of how things are functioning. And then these biohacks, the gargling, the humming, the chanting, the singing, the activation of those, uh, those muscles within the neck and the throat so important because they're actually innervated by branches, the motor branches of the vagus nerve, the pharyngeal, the uh, recurrent and, and superior laryngeal nerves that are branches of vagus. And so when we know that the motor components are working and we're stimulating the motor components, we're getting activation, electrical activation within the brainstem that when it's strong enough, will also go towards the sensory side of things. We'll also activate the sensory nuclei within the brainstem and those will send signals to the vagus nerve to say, yes, we're in a calm state. We're in this parasympathetic state. I have the ability to hum or sing. I'm generally not singing when I'm stressed or in a sympathetic state. And so your body can shift and elevate that set point a little bit higher. And that, that threshold will slowly start to rise because your resilience is going up when you do that. There are, there are other ways of stimulating the vagus nerve also. In Western society, we like simple solutions that, that are quick. They're easier than learning how to do Gregorian chants. It's, it's easier than humming, and it's easier than, than spending the time to exercise, although I certainly would suggest to everyone to exercise as much as possible and, and to, to take the time to do that. But there are some ways of stimulating the vagus nerve exogenously using um, electricity. There are a number of different branches of the vagus nerve that can be accessed or accessed peripherally or, or externally. Um, one is in your ear. So there are ways of stimulating the vagus nerve through the ear. Um, there's vagus nerve stimulators that will, will stimulate the cervical branch uh, right here on your neck, um, devices that will stimulate it externally. So you don't have to you know, do anything other than hold something against your neck to do it. But those are, those are other ways of stimulating the vagus nerve. But let's spend a little time talking about how the vagus nerve connects to those microglial cells. Mm -hmm. How is it that something that is purely accessing the nerve function of the ner central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system, how is that affecting the immune system? Yeah. Um, and we spent a little time talking about that before, but it's a fascinating pathway that um, in the central nervous system begins by stimulating the vagus nerve and sending messages at the right frequency up through the, the lowest levels of the brainstem, which are the nucleus tractus solitarius, and bringing information up into the, into the brainstem and then activating certain small centers of the brain um, that are critically important to the overall function of, of how uh, neurons, astrocytes, ol oligodendrocytes, and, and microglial cells behave in the brain. And it's the stimulation of the vagus nerve and the activation of really two different areas. One is the locus ceruleus, and the other is the nucleus bacillus. Um, those are two fantastic areas of the brain. They're tiny, they're in the brainstem, but they are the sources respectively of nearly all, if not all of the norepinephrine in your brain and acetylcholine. And we talked about the fact that acetylcholine is the primary neurotransmitter of the parasympathetic of your vagus nerve. And norepinephrine is the primary neurotransmitter of your sympathetic nervous system. So those two centers in your brain are critically important and they are activated when you stimulate the vagus nerve. Now let's start with the locus ceruleus. It is the source of norepinephrine. It is only about 50,000 neurons. Think about that. We have 86 billion neurons and only 50,000 of them 
are that locus ceruleus. And yet it is the most widely distributed network of neurons and axons in your brain. It, it sends literally to every cubic millimeter of your brain has norepinephrine released from those axons and both synaptically and extrasynaptically um, from that, that tiny area of your brainstem. And then the same is really true of your nucleus bacillus. That's your source of acetylcholine. Now, what happens when, and we'll talk about acetylcholine primarily because that's the, the canonical pathway by which the, the nervous system affects microglial cells and macrophages peripherally. What happens is vagus nerve activates that, that nucleus, the nucleus bacillus. There's a release of acetylcholine. The acetylcholine binds to those receptors on those microglial cells. We talked about them before, the alpha-7 nicotinic acetylcholine receptors. When that acetylcholine binds there, that, that microglial cell moves out of that angry pro-inflammatory state and moves into a quiescent state. We've actually had the opportunity through some phenomenal research done over in Bonn, Germany, to actually watch as microglial cells that are, that are primed to be angry and in that pro-inflammatory state within a matter of minutes move from that state into that quiescent surveilling, doing its, its neurotrophic job um, and it's, it all happens as a result of vagus nerve stimulation. There is a really great research study that I, I read about in 2017, literally is called activation of the alpha-7 nicotinic receptor promotes LPS-induced conversion of M1 microglia to M2. Essentially, the microglial cells are being turned from the inflammatory state to the anti-inflammatory state simply by activation of that receptor and that receptor is activated primarily by acetylcholine or exclusively by acetylcholine. And that acetylcholine is signaled to via the nucleus bacillus producing its uh, acetylcholine in response to getting inputs from the nucleus tractus solitarius, the NTS. And that's the vagus nerve connection. So for those who are on that neurology side and really want to understand the, the pathway by which that happens, the vagus nerve is going to have Peripherally, it's going to control inflammation using acetylcholine through the splenic nerve in the spleen to turn to downregulate macrophage activity and in the enteric nervous system to the uh, gut associated lymphoid tissue to downregulate macrophages there via acetylcholine. But in the brain, that nerve connection continues up through nucleus tractus solitarius to nucleus bacillus, activation of uh, release of the acetylcholine. And through activation of the nicotinic acetylcholine receptors, the alpha-7s, we're going to downregulate or shift microglial activity from M1 to M2. And M2 microglia are neurotrophic. They're supportive of uh, production of more connections and, and just kind of pruning the connections that need to be pruned and maintaining the connections that need to be connected. And so your neuroplasticity goes up, your cognitive ability goes up, the inflammation level is, is reduced significantly, and that eventually will allow for threshold levels to be elevated so that you're not constantly dealing with pain and inflammation type uh, challenges. So that just was a little thing that I've been researching recently. Well, I will tell you the last two and a half minutes of what you just said should literally be required listening for every human being on the planet. That was such a concise and wonderful summary of exactly what's happening when you stimulate the vagus nerve, whether you're doing it through breathing techniques, 
exercise or you're doing it with a stimulator. That is exactly what happens in the body and in the brain. And it's so critical. And I'm just going to take, just extend the piece in the brain to bring it back around to how it affects those somatoform disorders, because the somatoform disorders aren't necessarily currently the result of inflammation. It is the result of past inflammation, mm-hmm. past insults, chronic problems that have led to you now having that sick program running. That sick program needs to change. And the way to change it is to rely on your microglial cells to help to prune that network, to change that network, to help you learn differently. So when you're, when you're able to stimulate the vagus nerve in a in a relaxing environment, a great, you know, doing that prana breathing techniques with good music on, you know, it's quiet, there's no stress, you've relaxed. That is a great way to elevate those thresholds back to where you need them to be so that you're not going to experience pain too easily. You're not going to experience depression too simply. You're not going to have anxiety. You're not going to be aware of your gastric functioning and as a result experience discomfort associated with it. You're going to have the threshold be high enough that you ignore it. I mean, our stomachs are moving all the time. Yeah. I mean, it's just grinding away on it all the time. And yet we're completely unaware of it if we're healthy because there's no reason for us to be aware of it. The brain needs to, you know, I, I have a sort of a joke I tell about the fact that in order to be a healthy, functioning, happy person, I need to be completely blissfully unaware of 99% of what's going on around me and inside me. My, my wife likes to tell me that she is not part of the 99%. She needs to be part of that 1%. Um, and, and thankfully, she's, she's part of the good side. She's one of those rest and digest and, and restore people. She's not driving my sympathetic activity. So in any event, I think what you said, coupled with the fact that, that using, using the tools, using the biohacks, using the things that we're supposed to be doing with our bodies allows us to change those thresholds and reduce the experience of these symptoms. It is not easy and it will take time and you should not get discouraged. But I always feel as if knowledge is the first step towards making yourself be a successful healer of your own, of your own ills. Um, and so by giving you this information and by you having this information and by patients knowing why they're experiencing the pain, you know, there's nothing quite so destabilizing and, and uncomfortable and emotionally challenging than to be experiencing a problem and to have physicians either say they have no idea how to treat it or worse yet, blame you for it. Yeah. And so the very first thing I need to do in this, you know, when I talk to patients is the very first thing I need to do is validate them. Tell them what you're experiencing is real. It is something that can be fixed. It is not something that is just that you've made up. I believe you. I believe in you and I believe you are two of the most powering statements that you can make to somebody. I believe in you. I believe in what you're experiencing. I don't think that you're lying to me. As soon as you validate them, that relaxes them. And what do we want? We want them in a relaxed state. We want them to be ready to, you know, ready to heal, not ready to fight. People can't change without hope being present. And that's what I find when, when I'm able to give somebody an answer as to why they're experiencing what they're experiencing. The fact that they've seen six, seven, eight previous health practitioners without significant 
results or, or not being given the information that they need to actually make that change. The thing that always gets me that, that 90% of the time when I'm having this particular conversation, when we're going through test results with the patient is, oh, there it is. There's the proof. It's not all in my head. I have hope. I can do something about this now. Now we have a target of something that we want to address. And in the meantime, while we're addressing that root cause, if it's a gut-based bacterial dysfunction or a nutrient deficiency, at the same time, we're always, always doing vagus nerve activation exercises to ensure that the autonomic nervous system is balanced, that we have accelerator and brake working well together, and that we're not just pushing one or the other and ensuring that the inflammatory control is uh, elevated and that the threshold of what you're going to experience, that pain experiencing threshold is elevated. And in these somatoform disorders, we're seeing this lowered threshold consistently without a fail. And so it's really important for us to address that piece of the puzzle in a clinical setting, no question. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Wonderful. So why don't we do a quick review? What are the, the basic steps of what creates these challenges? on an inflammatory response side, and how do we, we, we just kind of went through the exercises, which is great. Sure. So the body is constantly sending information up into the brainstem. Most of the time, the brainstem gathers that information and gives us a, a sense of how we're feeling, which is typically simple. It's, do I have to go to the bathroom? Am I hungry or otherwise? Every once in a while, when there's a problem, the information coming up into the brainstem triggers a program which is called the SICK program in my world. And that SICK program gives you the experience of symptoms that are not necessarily driven specifically by what's happening in your body, but it's driven, it, your brain creates them in order to change your behavior. And it does that. And in the process, if it lasts for a very long period of time, the threshold for triggering that SICK program gets lower. And what we need to do is we need to do things so that we raise that threshold back up as quickly as possible, or if it's stuck in that low position so that you're experiencing chronic symptoms, we need to do that over a period of time to raise that threshold back up so that you're not experiencing those symptoms quite so, so radically or so frequently. One of the things that people with fibromyalgia will talk about is they have some good days and they have some bad days. People who track what it is that's driving their bad days often will tell you that it's stress. Stress makes them feel worse. Well, yes, but that's entirely a mental thing. And the reason for that, that stress causing it is because the microglial cells respond to stress, emotional stress, and that you end up with the signaling going into the brainstem being interpreted more, more quickly as damaging or threatening. And so you're experiencing the symptoms. We need to raise that threshold up raise that threshold up by, by limiting the sympathetic activation, promoting the parasympathetic activation, and you'll be healthy. So yeah, this was a great rundown exactly of what's going on, what we want to create, the changes that we want to experience, and, and how we can actually create those changes using these biohacks, using these, these particular ways of activating not just the autonomic nervous system uh, through the vagus nerve, but through the entire balancing of the autonomic control and noting that the, the offending concern here is some sort of inflammatory trigger that's turning the microglial cells on and hyperactivating them. 
when they become hyperactivated, the threshold for stress goes down and we then go into this response that creates these diagnosis-based patterns, the fibromyalgia, the chronic fatigue, the idiopathic conditions that don't have a particular medically rooted um, cause. And so this is what we need to do is address not only the inflammatory control, but also uh, through the autonomic nervous system, elevate that threshold so that you, you are able to experience what it feels like to be on those good days and make that a more consistent pattern. All right. So I hope this has been insightful for those who either are experiencing somatoform conditions. Please share this with somebody that, that needs to hear this information. Feel free to, if you're a clinician, use this information when you're speaking with your clients and get to understand that every one of these conditions, because they are occurring in the pattern that they are, they all have a root cause. And the underlying thing that you want to do is find that root cause and address it in a positive way. And in the meantime, work on supporting the inflammatory control within the body through autonomic uh, control, through asserting that autonomic activity through the vagus nerve. All right. So lots of great tips, uh, lots of pathophysiology in, in today's uh, episode, but, but really important information for everybody to take home and actually make positive changes to their health. All right. So thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned for the next one. We're getting into some really cool stuff with regards to metabolic conditions and how the vagus nerve actually plays a very, very important role here in the creation of these conditions. Okay. Have a wonderful day and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you.